Well, since we recorded last, so many things have happened that it's uh, mm. almost pointless to go through every note I've written down. I, sure. At some point, I even stopped writing notes, but yep. then I remembered and I just created little text files for them. Like, I went to the cinema and watched uh, They Shall Not Grow Old, the uh, oh Peter I'm Jackson in- World War One movie. I'm interested in that because I was making fun of it uh, a couple of days ago, and, mm. uh, and and I got some pushback for that. And the reason I was making fun of it, so this is a film as I understand it, where they've taken World War One footage, yes, World yes. War One, and they've really, really spruced it up, and they've colorized it, and they've done everything within our current technological limits to make it look current, and therefore you kind of that 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 veneer of like history is taken away, and instead it's like you're just watching guys and the things they went through. Um, all in favor of that. That excites me technologically. My problem is that when I watched the trailer, um, part of what they'd done to restore this footage was that a lot of it is, of course, because it's so old, is silent footage. Yes. So they'd got voice actors to go like, all right, governor, we're soldiers in the war. And it just seemed so silly that I was concerned that the whole film would be spent like laughing. And I was, and I, my tweet was along the lines of, I'd like to see, you know, people with, with their reverent serious faces on trying not to, to break as they listen to this ridiculous voiceover apparently it's not too bad though what do you think yeah in in practice i i was worried that it would be feel cheap mm. especially with like would i ever hear like a, a clear stock sound how yeah believable would the mix be but it yeah, feels... how many how many willem screams did they use in the end yeah it, it Nothing stuck out as bad. I'll tell you what. I'll tell you why I was concerned about this. What actually set me off was that uh, there is, I think, um, uh, a, a negative um, aspect of this. In the Vietnam documentary, mm. there's a lot of uh, war footage, and they've, of, you know, they've foleyed it, um, presumably because the footage just didn't happen to have sound, or they needed to because there was like a, you know, journalist talking over it or whatever. Yeah. And sometimes you do pick up on these moments where. Some some random person in background footage like mouths a word and they've got someone clearly to come into a studio and say the closest thing they think that it could have been. And it to me, it distracts from the narrative. Yeah. Now, this was done better than the Vietnam documentary. So mm-hmm. it didn't at first. It felt mm. a bit strange because uh, you kind of get used to all the really heavy frame interpolation uh, artifacting going on because, of course, footage this old is of a different frame rate and it ran at a different speed. And they've tried to change it so it runs at 24 frames per second and um, like a more standard filmic look. And also they've zoomed in on it so it's kind of cropped to make it a more cinematic aspect ratio and all of... Uh, to really just fill out the screen and really kind of get at details of deep into the footage. And uh, yeah, some some of the worst looking footage is kind of right at the start of the colorized part of the film. But then I really got used to it. And the way they <clears throat> fill in the gaps with illustrations and still photos, um, it, it really like a, Like a lost Doctor Who episode. Yeah. And uh, the, the whole... Uh, kind of narrative framing of the film is it's all voiceover by people who were at the war and they're talking about what it was like, what their lives were like kind of before the war, their impression of like signing up for the war, going through boot camp and how uh, their jovial 
attitude to it started changing after the kind of being at boot camp after a while the the building dread to the war itself and mm. it, i thought it was a really well done movie and there's also like a question hanging over it like do we need is this there a point to this movie after the dan carlin world war one podcast episodes i know what the, I, I was about to say exactly yeah. what the point of it is which is that the Dan Carlin World War One podcast is great and brilliant, and I've never made it more than about twenty minutes in because it's like so long that it's just completely overwhelming. Like it's a miracle that I've got this far into the Vietnam documentary. I'm on part, I think, eight of ten. I've been watching it since what before Christmas? Like ages. It's so hard to get through lengthy documentaries about things which fundamentally are horrible to think about. I think like you have a skill where you can watch like. You know, Nazi propaganda. Is that a skill? Is that a good thing? I don't know. But you can watch stuff that's like for for historical, uh, educational reasons that I think most people are just like, oh, my God, too heavy, too much. Can we not? So I think with something like this that takes something, it takes some of the uh, work out of learning about this thing. I think that's I think that's the point of it. Yeah. yeah. But even as someone who has taken in a lot of like hours and hours of podcasts about mm-hmm. this stuff. This is still a valuable movie that kind of adds something to the mm-hmm. perspective because it's because of the framing, because it's all just voices from people who were there. It sh- feels very subjective. It changes it. it. It's not like a high level, a, a cold perspective of it. It, it has this mm-hmm. really, really sense of humor and warmth to it. It and feels like mm-hmm. with the colorized footage, it feels more, I guess, alive, and you get a better, like, human feel and touch to the yeah. whole thing. I, I felt like it It was a, a really worthwhile thing to do, and I think they did a really good job. And one of the most important things here is it's one hour and 40 minutes long, so it's not super long, and it feels half its length. It felt so effortless to watch it, and felt like... It, <clears throat> Time just flew, and then it ended just when it should have ended. And it just feels like, yeah, anyone could watch this. It's really entertaining. Time just flies. It doesn't feel like you have your time wasted. And it feels like you've expanded your perspective of an historical event and feels completely right. fair to the people who were there. So, it's, right. uh, yeah, it's really good. <laughs> <laughs> when, whenever it shows up on Netflix or whatever, um, it's... Yeah, highly recommended just to watch it. Well, and... uh, unfortunately, I missed it. It turns out that on the 19th of February, they showed it on BBC. And mm. uh, and it's already gone from the iPlayer. So that's that's my I've missed my first chance to watch it, unfortunately. Yeah, I went to the cinema and watched it. <laughs> I know. I don't. I, I suspect it might not have got a cinematic release here because mm. for it to just go straight onto the BBC, it's just, you know, that suggests it didn't, didn't it? Yeah. Anyway. <clears throat> so it turns out Peter Jackson can still actually make a competent film. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it, <clears throat> there's been some doubt about that, you know, for a long time now. Well, yeah, there has. I mean, yeah, as we learn more about the Hobbit trilogy, we find out that it wasn't necessarily his fault what happened there. But uh, but I think questions have been uh, floating around since King Kong. So, yes, it is. Yeah. It is yes, it is nice to know that. Yeah. And this is uh, easily one of the shortest films he's made um, in the 2000s. <laughs> right. 
Anyway, so I mean, I went and watched Us in the theater, the the Jordan Peele <coughs> film. Yeah, well, it was all right. <laughs> yeah, you you'll have to avoid telling me the spoiler because you know today I was listening to Trends Like These, one of my favorite podcasts, and uh, I had to. They said they were about to do spoilers for the film, and I had to get out of the shower uh, yeah. <laughs> and switch it off. But yeah, um, and and it is uh, like a, a mystery film, so yeah, just yeah. have a heavily spoilable elements in it. And I think the trailers show too much, and it's easy to spoil it. (coughs) It was the same thing with his last film. I I had it (coughs) spoiled completely Uh, by people talking about it, so I I really didn't enjoy it because I was was waiting on stuff that was revealed in the last five minutes of the movie. (laughs) Right. I was like, okay, so I guess that's it then. (laughs) Right, yes, because, and I won't say what it is, but... Yes, in that film, you, you're supposed to essentially, it, yeah, you're, it sort of comes into focus almost at the very end, doesn't it? Mm. Or and or or almost not at all. You're sort of left to go like, oh, it's this, rather than the film going, and here's what it is. So yeah, I can imagine if you were expecting that to be the premise, then you would have been waiting for the whole film. Yeah. Anyway, I mean, there are a few bigger things to talk about. That I think will take up the bulk of the entire show. Uh-huh. Maybe we should stop kind of beating around the bush. So either I should recap you on how horrible Star Trek Discovery is. <laughs> or we'll talk about the Kotaku Anthem article. <laughs> well, which would you find more interesting? Uh, yeah, I haven't watched a single Discovery since we last talked. Because... I- <sighs> Have I given up? I don't know. Like, every time the urge hits to watch Star Trek, there's DS9. Yeah. And yesterday, I was watching this week's episode, which is episode 12. So I think there's one more episode left on the season, then it's over. Uh It occurred to me that this season was supposed to be funnier than the last one. Uh But... It's absolutely not, because in episode 12, they showed the comic relief alien from episode 1 again for the first time in uh, five episodes or something. I'm sorry, remind me about that alien? Uh, he has big eyes and uh, squirts... Um... Oh, what, the one that sneezes on someone? Yeah, the sneezy one. Oh, God, is there more jokes than just that he sneezes on people? Because that's a joke I've been sick of for decades. Uh, it's, he sneezes twice in the entire season, and here he was just in the background, and I was reminded that, oh yeah, there there are, A, aliens in this show, and I haven't mm-hmm. seen that guy for several episodes. And, like, Saru, he had, uh, like, one episode dedicated to him, like, I don't know, five episodes ago, and he's barely been in the show. It's been a... I made a note during episode 11, I feel, here, I uh, wrote down... This is the least diverse Star Trek show ever. It keeps bouncing back and forth between the same few human characters all the time. It's just section 31 over and over again. There are no exciting new characters ever. No time is given to the aliens. Like, even in Babylon 5, a show I think is pretty bad, it kept introducing new, fun, supporting alien characters on, like, an episode-by-episode basis. Like, there was... On the station in Babylon 5, there was like one a bug alien who was kind of like the keepers in uh, the Citadel in Mass Effect, where it's yet completely inhuman, doesn't speak English, there's no human emotive thing to bounce off of there, but that character in Babylon 5 ran the criminal underworld on the ship, 
So uh. it was like a mobster boss that was just a bug. <laughs> <laughs> cool. And there's nothing like that in Star Trek Discovery. There's... And I want to I, I want to make very very clear that I think Saru is great and um uh what's his name Doug Jones he's great and I would love to see loads of him and basically any time the series it basically any time the series pivots away from him and instead does something boring that that kind of I notice that and never more do I notice it than when they uh pivot away from him in order to highlight that beardy guy who's kind of a secret Klingon but kind of not yeah Ash he- Ash I think his name is K- Again, I've said it before, and 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 I really want to like dial back from sounding like I'm blaming the actor for this. I'm sure he's great, but like, I don't like it. Any time that guy is on screen, just something about the non-defined nature of why I'm supposed to be. It's not. It's not that there's not. It ha- it's not that they haven't defined who he is and what his thing is. It's that they haven't defined what their point is of using him. It's it's the way that. One episode, it'll be like, "Whoa, this guy's actually a Klingon that's taken over, like, and an evil Klingon at that that's taken over this human." And then the next, he's just on the ship, knocking about. And am I, am I, is he a villain? Am I scared of him? Am I sympathetic towards him? They've never really quite told me. Yeah, I mean, in episode eleven, he works for the bad guys, and in episode twelve, he. It's an episode about him being concerned about his child that he had with the Klingon, and it, they right. tried to find the child. And I was like, are you really this close to the end of the season, having a Ash Tyler-focused episode where he's trying to find his baby? And like, I don't give even a tiny shit about this character. I hate him. <laughs> yeah, and the thing is, all of those things, I, I think if someone was a fan and they heard us saying these things, they'd be like, well, what's wrong with those plot points? They might be able to bring up other series with similar plot, plot, plot points. The problem isn't specifically what his character is going through and what it is. I don't know specifically what it is because it's such a sleight of hand that writing teams should be able <clears> to <throat> get around, but they've never established the point of this character. I, I don't like... With most of, okay, so so in old Star Trek, right? Every character, I mean, nineties Star Trek, but original as well. Every character went through stuff that was different to what they'd gone through before. It's not the fact that he's going through different stuff; it's that there was always a grounding for that character in the first place. So if Worf went off on a a silly adventure in a and it was like a comedy episode, that is on top of the fact that we know Worf as this like honor obsessed. Uh, Klingon who's like straddling two worlds because he's brought up by humans and the Klingons don't accept him and he's found a place in Starfleet like you know why you can and also a mesmerizing performance by the original cast members of TNG DS9 not really Voyager Um, (laughs) like and that was the problem with Voyager as well when you have a character like like I don't know well I can't even remember their names but like half the characters in Voyager were just some guy or some girl, and they were just like, for whatever reason, there. And and it was very difficult to care about them, because you need to be hooked, either by the actor, or by some premise about the character. And that is what I have not had from Ash Tyler, because it's they're like, every time we've seen him, it's a curveball about who he is, what's going on with him, and I've never felt like they've ever settled down on what it actually is, so that the other stuff can be a deviation or a surprise away from that. Yeah, I mean, my connection to the entire cast here, at the end of season two, it feels like everyone 
it's completely superficial. Mm. Like there's nothing really going on with any of them. And so a, a perfect encapsulation of this is Giorgio, who mm. starts off as like the new Picard. She was such a good captain character when we first met her. Great performance, great character, great relationship with Michael Burnham. Since then, she's dead. That happens in like episode one and or two. And then since then, we've had this evil version of her from an alternate universe. But also, she's a main character. And it's like, um, what does it remind me of? Oh, I'll tell you what it reminds me of. It reminds me of a mistake, I think a mistake, in the Harry Potter series. Where you have this whole book learning the character Mad-Eye Moody. And then it turns out at the end of that book, stroke film, that he's actually a bad guy who's taken Polyjuice Potion to resemble Mad-Eye Moody. Okay, that's a twist. Fine. But then, in the next book... Everyone just continues knowing Mad-Eye Moody. It, like, the, the book and the film treats it as if we know the character. But that wasn't him. When we, when we got to know the character, it wasn't him. It was someone else. And it's not addressed. And it isn't covered. This feels like that. Here's this alternate version of this character. And, like, when I, I've never felt like I've got to know who it is. She just comes in, does a kind of a, like, a power walk, do, says a snarky line and goes. And that's it? Give me more than that. And that's what I feel like most of the cast, except Saru. Saru is great. We've got so much from him in such so much so little time. He deserves more. Give him a whole show sorted. <laughs> yeah. And it sure feels like they're just making stuff up as they go mm. along on an episode by episode basis. And I'm sure that's the case because whenever something feels like it's a rushed piece of crap, that's how the what the production was like. Like for episode nine, notice in the note here, it's you know the robot character in the background that's been in the both seasons, and we wondered yes. like why is this not a character? Well, in episode uh, nine, we've we've wondered two things. Number one, why is this not a character? Number two, how specifically does this tie in with the fact that Android that Data is the first Android in the world? Please explain Star Trek Discovery. <laughs> uh, yeah, and in episode nine, they notice that oh, we have this cool character in the background. Let's make the entire episode about the that character so we have a tragic death scene for the robot character oh what really uh, the first time we get to know who it is they kill it yeah and then oh. in, in episode 10 as they're exhuming the corpse that's when they explain how the robot works for the first time oh man in the like opening 12 minutes of the show we see like a examination of the corpse and it's like okay so it's actually a robot with a human brain in it Okay. And a ro robotic exterior. And it's like, why did we not learn this in episode 3 of season 1 instead of episode 10 of season 2 when the character is dead? That's, <laughs> that's yeah, like, have, uh, okay, a, an android body with a human brain, that is, I mean, the premise of Battle Angel Alita, but that is a really interesting concept that I would be very happy to hear Star Trek go on and on and on about at length. Yeah, but no, no, no. and the character is completely forgotten, by the way, um, in, in the second half of episode 10 and 11 and 12, there's no mention of it ever, and because there's no interesting robot character in the background anymore, it just feels like, oh, here's this human character, oh, here's this human character again, here's this human character again, oh, here's section 31 again, mm. I hate them so much, and they're in every single episode. <clears throat> 
And uh, we we found out the what the red angel is, what the whole story is, and it's just oh, oh that's it. Really? <laughs> so yeah, this is a. Uh, so you what, found what, out what the red angel is, and that's all wrapped up like <coughs> a few episodes before the end of the series. Yeah, I I, I think it's uh, in episode eleven. It's revealed what the red angel is. In episode twelve, they're just doing something else. <laughs> oh my god, what is up with this? See, this explains the the problem with Ash Tyler that I have. Mm. Because if... Imagine you've got like multiple writers working on multiple episodes without really much communication between them. That would absolutely create the Ash Tyler effect, where one episode is this, another episode is that. And it's because the writer of that episode... That's what their idea of this character is, and and there's not a, like an actual answer. And that's I've I've this is a feeling that I've had from multiple things before. Lost was one, um, Battlestar Galactica was one in, in a, to a lesser extent. Some of the characters in that were very well defined, but some of them there was that weird, like what's going on then sort of sense to it. Yeah, and I mean I've wrote down in my notes here positive words for like Stargate Atlantis, like. Even bad sci-fi shows have at least two or three good characters that kind of keeps the entire show afloat because whenever they're given space, that's when the show is good. And then, yeah. like, the rest, like, 50 to 80% of the episode is just trash. And in Atlantis, those two characters who were good, they were given more and more time and, like, the people playing them, they started, like, directing episodes of the show. They basically took over. And it was, like, it was good because they were the only good things about the entire series. <laughs> and I'm sitting here watching Star Trek Discovery, like, thinking, why doesn't this have at least that tiny sliver of charm that Atlantis had sometimes that kept me going through the entire series, even though it was trash that nobody should ever watch yeah. So yeah, this is one of the worst sci-fi shows ever put on television, and uh, it's... it's what a shame because yeah. it's it's again, as you know, I am right in the middle of a big ninety Star Trek rewatch, and like it's not all good, but it's never got this at its worst. It never has this like this sense of rampaging confusion that discovery has where it where you almost feel like you're you're being asked not to understand what's going on like most of the time uh, it's so it's so strange it's uh, honestly like i've watched it and i've wondered if my brain is the problem and if i've got something wrong with me um uh, well not that perhaps wrong is the wrong word there but like do you know what i mean i have considered i have thought about the state of my mental health while watching Star Trek Discovery, and then I'll put on DS9, and there's no such question. And it is the writing, and it isn't me. And, like, why is that happening to Star Trek? Why is that happening to Star Trek? Which is something that presumably there are people in charge of who want to keep it, like, as, like, a flagship thing. But why is that happening to the flagship thing that is the only reason keeping people on the hook of the uh, delivery system for that show. Because in America, it's a subscription like channel. And Star Trek Discovery is the only thing that's, that anyone is subscribing to that channel for that I'm aware of. So it is carrying subscriptions by itself. And that's why they, they have these long-running stories and mysteries. It's why they held back on revealing Spock for so long. Like, 
what uh, th- when that is what you are running you ought to be very carefully running it and making sure it's very good especially since everyone who dislikes this show um if they uh, some of them say you should go and watch the um the Orville but almost all of them say that you should go and watch the Expanse which is like sci-fi done clever still and that's on Netflix and it's like that's your so i would say that the Expanse and the Orville are their two like key competitors and why aren't they at least as good as that yeah i mean the Orville isn't that good <laughs> and yeah it's good at the mention that Discovery is so bad, you start to question your sanity. You start to question whether sci-fi shows are even for you anymore. Yes. Like it's, it's almost like it's made by a completely different culture. Like you're watching something imported well, that's beyond your imagination, oh, uh, your uh, comprehension. That's exactly what it feels like. And specifically what it feels like is like, you know, um, watching... If you, if you ever watch like the current series of Super Sentai, or even... The most recent series of Power Rangers, you'll yeah. fi- and you haven't watched it since the nineties. You'll find this this weird culture shock storytelling that feels not one hundred percent dissimilar from Discovery, except Discovery it's closer to Lost. I would say Lost is the thing that feels the most like this because uh, as as with Star Trek Discovery, the first few episodes of the first season, you're like, cool, all right, I'm on board with this. We've got some mystery stuff. What's this going to be? And then by the middle of series two, you're like. It's nothing. They don't know. It's nothing. There's no need to watch this, but I've got to because they've hooked me. Yeah, and that's why it feels it's so, like a punishment. Yeah, that, that's why it's good that it, good things still exist. That reminds you that no, you you haven't lost your sanity. These people are just incompetent enough to make you question your sanity. <laughs> that's so weird yeah. that that could happen. Yeah, like because if that can happen, why aren't I? A successful television writer, like I can, I can write badly. So why aren't, why don't I have that career? I should just submit because, like, I've been holding back because I'm like, oh, I couldn't, I don't, I'm not good enough for that. I'm not gonna, I, I need to hone my skills. No, I don't. Yeah, you just need to be more shameless and just put it yeah. out there and just pretend like you're competent, which you probably will be in comparison. I mean, yeah, like, I don't know. I've always, something I've always marveled about is like, you know, when I watched um, The Wire and like Breaking Bad, I, I was always very impressed by the fact that those were shows that could write an ongoing story that continued to be engaging, but nothing that big tended to happen. There were, in both ones, there were episodes where something immense happened, but generally the usual running of the thing was that you just have some time with these characters and that's it. And as I was watching it, I was thinking to myself, how do you manage that? How do you decide? Because if I'm writing a story, the way I'm doing it is I'm like, well, first this happens, then this happens, then this happens, and then I'll fill in the spaces there with like character stuff and, well, hey, I'm not that, you know, tried and tested of a writer, so perhaps I can't do it. We don't know yet. But, like, that's how I go about it. I'm thinking in terms of what happens in what order and how do we fill in the gaps. To run a show where, like, what happens on several good episodes is nothing, but it's still a worthwhile time and, like, a good episode and memorable time. Like, that is so subtle a thing to to keep up in the air that I don't know. I don't understand how it's achieved. So I've always thought, therefore, I'm not good enough. I couldn't do that job. And then this happens. Mm. And, like... I guess in this case you do have uh, like from like in every single episode something happens, but 
I'd be hard pressed to say what some of the time. It's yeah, and I think it was when I started episode eleven. I saw in the recap that well, that summarized literally everything of note in the previous episode. I might as well just watch the recaps because there's nothing more to the show than what they show in the recaps. <laughs> yeah, and yet the style of the show is like it's like recap style. It's mm. so weirdly frenetic with people just like like legging it into a room saying a, a a line that's like so weirdly written that you have to almost like decrypt it and then spinning around and leaving again and like and then there's a dramatic musical st- it's it's so strange this method of writing like where's it come from yeah and it might be uh, the result of someone just scrambling against a brutal schedule because yeah in, oh, yeah. The- in theory they have the same amount of time in the day in and over a season as anyone else but yeah. Clearly, something behind the scene must be sucking up every kind of working hour of the staff that they don't get much done. So they just kind of throw something down on the page and it's like, make it a bit funny. Okay, uh, there we go. I'll tell you what, actually. Here's what it reminds me of, actually. Now that you say now that, you say that imagine you're writing an episode of, of Deep Space Nine and it's the 90s and you're writing <clears> that. <throat> Your note... For the scene that you've got to read, that you've got to write, is something like I don't know. Um, um, Cisco says, "I care for you, my son Jake," um, and Jake says, uh, "I don't know." J- Jake's emotional beat that we have to write in that scene is like, "I'm actually this is nice, Dad, but I'm more interested in the fact that I'm trying to go on a date with this girl." And then Kira Norris is going to come in, and she's going to have something important about Bajor that's that's like way more important. Okay, so th- those are your notes. You're writing DS9. You what you do is you put those notes on the table. You, you maybe you know you can do this mentally or physically. Spread them out. Figure out how to tackle them. What things? What what's the setting? What thing could they be trying to do? In which all of these things could come up? How could these topics come up? Like what? In what ways could you subtly move from one topic to the next? That's what you do on DS9. On Discovery, you have Cisco, I care for you, my son, comma, Jake. Jake, that's nice, Dad, but I'm trying to date this girl. And to Kira Norris, I've got something going on on Bejo. That's the difference. They literally will just come in and say the notes version that you, you feel as if maybe their writers were supposed to expand on and didn't. Yeah, that's how it feels. That's how it feels. That's not how. That's, okay, that's not a 100% fair assessment of what the series is like. But And no, it, it's a lot worse. <laughs> well, when it does its thing, it feels like that to me, and that, mm. and it shouldn't. What it, <laughs> how is it worse? No, it's just uh, everyone's <laughs> just speaking literally what they think and feel, except there's it. It's not attached to a like a, an arc of any kind. Like in the final parts of the show, we're just arriving at the end of character arcs, and people are having big emotional outbursts and, and crying and screaming. Without any setup whatsoever. It's like we've cut out like 20 episodes of a season here. And we're just arriving at the end. (laughs) One of the big problems is that when someone says... when, when, Okay, and this is... I have a problem with a lot of drama that's like this. And I can't think of many examples, but I've seen it so many times. It's so frustrating. When someone comes in and says what we've just described, this Cliff's Notes version of like... what, not, Not how a person in real life would say a thing, but how how you would write down an idea in your notebook to remind yourself what it is when someone comes out and speaks like that and everyone else 
treats it as if they talked normally. There's this disconnect because you literally are missing information. And so, like, when a character responds, like, if I had this, okay, imagine that we're talking now and, like, I'm really angry at you for something and you don't know what, you don't know that I'm angry at you and you don't know what you've done, right? And I, you, you know, I might, a, a viewer is watching us and they might pick up on the fact that I'm annoyed. They might know what I'm annoyed about and they might see like, ah, he's speaking like that because he's annoyed. That is like dr- dramatic subtext, right? But on Discovery, I would, I would come out and I would like be talking to you in an angry voice. And, and it would be like having skipped over all of the context the audience would still be expected to go, ah, they're talking like that. God, I'm explaining this so badly. I'm explaining this like a Discovery character. But when they yeah. <laughs> when they, when they have dialogue that would elicit one response from a human, like the characters aren't responding. Here we go. The characters aren't responding to the things the characters are saying. The characters are responding to the things the audience is supposed to be responding to. And that doesn't make sense. No, that's not right either. It's so difficult to describe because there's such a disconnect. But like, it's just the people are not listening to each other and responding in the normal way. They are responding to stuff we haven't been given or stuff the audience has been given, but the characters haven't and subtext that shouldn't be there. And it's all so weird. Yeah. And the way they just pull stuff out of their ass as amazing plot twists. Like at one point, (laughs) they reveal... Oh, here's Michael's mother, and she's having a huge uh, emotional outburst of seeing her biological mother because she thought she was dead. And it's like, okay. And then in the <laughs> next episode, at the beginning of it, they explain why she reacted emotionally to her mother because it's like nothing in the season has been about her mother or family or wanting to know about them at all. It's not. It's like. In the next episode, it's like a, a post-hoc explanation for the plot twist and why the character cared at all. And because they didn't lead up to that in any way at all, it's just it's just skipping to the final yeah. episodes of a series. And then kind of afterwards, a friend explains the, the entire story of the season. Yeah, this is, a, <laughs> this is a problem for two reasons. Firstly, because it just doesn't like make sense in the moment yep. but secondly because it assumes that like that that's good enough because it means that when you say like why on earth did they act this way a fan can reply ah well it's explained that that was actually a that was a that was a, a crumb to lead you to the reveal a few episodes later that it's actually because of this and you're like okay yes technically that is the that's correct but it didn't feel like a crumb at the time. It just felt like it made no sense. So instead of going like, oh, oh, what's the, why are you having that reaction? Which can be done. You can write drama that way. Most people do. It's, I don't know if it's to do with the writing or the direction, but that, that's fine. But that's not what it is. You're just like confused because it makes no sense. And the fact that there may be a, a, an explanation, and I'm sure, yeah, it's presented ad hoc, but maybe I'm sure they had it, they had it in their minds at the time. But like, that it, it isn't good enough because it means that the the constant experience of watching the show is confusion and the sense that nothing makes sense rather than intrigue and the sense of waiting for something to make sense and they can point and they can say no because look at this look at this fan forum where they were like oh i wonder what this means but the thing is that's what all fans always do when things are bad they're like oh what's it like lost what oh what's this really and the answer is nothing 
but we've learned to just be like that on the internet and of course there's you know the the the, the after show i don't know if they still do it for discovery but the after show where it's you know on tv people going like whoa what a crazy episode what do you think that shot was about what do you think that reaction was about and it's like yeah but i don't watch that because it's trash so so yeah. what I get is just confusion, yeah. not mystery. And in episode 12, I was reminded that Spock wanders into a scene. It's like, oh yeah, he's still in the show. <laughs> he's yeah. completely pointless now. Because at first it was about, oh, we have to find Spock. What's yep. her, her relationship with Spock? And it's like, oh, it's nothing. Uh, here's Michael's mom. And then like an episode <laughs> later, oh, uh, Spock is still here, by the way. But we've completely forgotten about any kind of story with him and he's not connected to this in any way <laughs> okay right spock i've ju- i've got to say this because like it's so basic of me and it's mm. so s- simple and stupid and presumably hashed out everywhere on the internet already but that's not spock no it's not spock it, i in- can't accept that guy as spock i've got nothing against the actor or his performance in this show but it's nothing to do with spock one of the most like recognizable pop culture characters in terms of how he looks and how he acts and i had i have criticisms of uh, zachary quinto in the films like plenty but they don't go anywhere towards my criticism of this because at least there you could tell that they were like well we're trying like we you know that this is at least someone doing half an impression of spock like it's meant to be the same character this is like they're like you know it's literally nothing like him in any sense at all like nothing about the way he acts his story his character what he looks like any like in fact we've even gone out of our way because we've having grow this beard like nothing about him is anything to do with spock but you're just not supposed to acknowledge that yep. it's not it doesn't I mean, unless uh, in the future episodes it comes up as there's there's an explanation for it an ad hoc explanation for it in all the episodes i've seen it's just not addressed and we're supposed to accept that that's him and it's like it's not. It's nothing like him. That if that, it's the equivalent of if this same guy who's playing Spock in this series was just like the recast actor for Bilbo Baggins, two Hobbit films in. It's like no, just absolutely not. Because it's like, and I'm not being a fanboy here. I don't. I'm not that big of a TOS fanboy. It's just literally all I'm talking about is the fact that we are being expected not to go. Uh, that's nothing like Spock. And the show is just expecting us not to do that. When, how can you do anything else? It, you know, it's like if they, they might as well have not given him pointy ears and expected me not to say anything about it. Yeah. How is, do they, is this addressed in later episodes? No. How am I supposed to, I, and I get, and I'm not for a moment, I am absolutely not um, talking about the fact that he doesn't resemble Zachary Quinto and that it seems like I'm supposed to accept that maybe the this Spock, this Spock and the Zachary Quinto Spock are the same Spock on the same timeline. It's ambiguous. I can't tell. Either way, even if it is that, I'm fine with that. Recasting is fine. I've got no problem with a different Sarek, for example. Um, in fact, I've got no problem with the Sarek in this. And I've got no problem with the Captain Pike in this. Mm. Both of which appear to be pretty much like, yep, sure, you, yep, that's a perfectly reasonable recasting and reimagining of this character I've seen before, and I will accept them as the same character in different shows. Got it. Spock, though. Yeah, he's... It's, it's Spock! It is Spock! You can't just have some rando off the street and call him Spock! Well, I, I guess they could... <laughs> explain afterwards after they, they <laughs> the people who made the show watch it they could just go out and say that yeah we're this is 
a different person who also happens to be called Spock, but it's not <laughs> Spock. That would make more sense than what they did. It w- uh, yeah. yeah, it kind of would. Because, hey, Spock, there can't, there'll be more than one Vulcan called Spock. Like, there's more Daves and Peters in the world. Like, people have the same name. That'd be fine. It would be ridiculous, but it'd be fine. Yeah, the, the last episode should end with him going back to Vulcan and there's loads of people called Spock. And and all of their dads are called Sarek. And yeah. all of their mums are called whatever she's called. I can't remember. Yeah, uh, loads of people there have human mothers. Yeah. Yeah. It's... Right? It's not good yeah. enough, is it? But no. that's I'm not and again, I'm not criticizing the actor at all. He's fine. It's just that it's not Spock, and they're telling me it is, and I'm going, it isn't. Yeah, and I can just imagine being put in the position of having to play any of these characters and doing a good job with it. Because they have nothing to work <laughs> with and nothing in the script makes any sense at all. You just kind of have to go by the notes and maybe ask the writer, like, what's the emotion supposed to be here? And they'll make a caricature of it. (laughs) I'm not usually this grumpy. I think it's because I've got this cold. I like, genuinely, I know loads of people who, for for some reason, the majority of, like, things about Discovery that I see on my Twitter is is how great it is. Like, people love Discovery. Uh, Yeah, and Um, they're they're delusional. Uh, (laughs) I mean, if you watch anything or play anything that's good you notice that this is unacceptably bad and it's so easy to just watch anything else and you'll notice that and no things can actually be good (laughs) (laughs) i mean i think i just needed to vent a bit because yeah i don't know man like and i don't want to be here's what i don't want to be doing is going like oh well it's not as good as uh as 1990s series deep space nine because here are the reasons it's different like uh, you know that I do not have any truck for that. I'm I, I'm not even that big of a fan of DS9. Like that's the one that's usually held up as the best Star Trek. Like I I know that d- d- I love TNG. I know most of it is stupid. It's not stupid Star Trek that's the problem. It's a particular kind of like I have these same criticisms about any TV that's like this. Not not it's got nothing to do with it being Star Trek. Um, I just can't tell what's going on. Or what I'm supposed to think is going on. And every time they bring up some concept, it's like I've got to remember just like piles of just daft storytelling that didn't make sense then. I think that's what it is. I think it's when something doesn't make sense at the time. And like, you know, everyone's acting in weird ways and they would never, nobody would ever make these decisions or say these things. And then five episodes later, I'm supposed to have remembered it. I'm supposed to have taken it on board and taken it seriously as like, ah, this character thinks this about this thing. There's there's arbitrary conflicts between people and like, you know, there are certain people who, okay, okay, it's difficult to not compare this to Star Trek and I don't want to be the comparing it to previous iterations person, but like on good Star Trek, when there's an issue, the main thing about the series and about what Starfleet is and about the point of it is that they'll, is they'll essentially quite quickly come to be on the same page and deal with the problem. So, like, if you've got an, an, an episode where uh, a char- one of the Star Trek characters is like, okay, so I watched one recently where Worf uh, keeps, like, um, Mandela affecting between dimensions. He keeps sliding between different di- versions of the current reality for some reason. 
And so he's like, wait a minute, that picture was on that wall or this item was over there. And then it's like, wait a minute, you weren't in the room and now you are. And people are like, what are you on about? And then pretty quickly, they're like, oh, man, really? We better figure out what this is. And they figure out what it is together. And that's the refreshing thing about it. And that that okay, that was a a particular characteristic of Star Trek. But also it points to um, what I think is like good writing, which is that in real life. Yes, there are conflicts between people, but as soon as possible, we resolve them. Or at least, sensible people resolve them. The only people who don't, and this is where drama comes from, is people who either A, have like fundamental differences in like opinion and who they are and like everything about them right down to the, le- the, to the, to the level of what their morality is, or nutcases. Those are the two people who, who like are constantly in conflict with those around them. The rest of us, go like, oh man, oh that sounds bad, I will help you in some way, and we work together and we solve problems. Or we fail to, right? In in this kind of show, it's conflict all the time. All the time. And I disagree, I'm not one of the, I disagree with uh, Gene Roddenberry that there shouldn't be conflict in Star Trek. There should. The problem is that when it lasts, it just, when the, the issues aren't what last, but just the fact of conflict is what's constant. That is exhausting. Yeah. It makes no sense. Yeah, and it's a very limiting way of thinking. And in earlier series, there was a sh- sense of like shared like a, a comradeship and a culture mm. on the ship where yes. the day-to-day, everything worked just fine. Yes. But in the episode, we we join a character or we have some event where something big happens. There's a mystery to solve or something. And there's actually friends working yes. together to do something. Whereas in Discovery, it's just nothing external ever happens in the series. It feels like it's just internal conflicts and like outright fights with like Section 31. And in what why people like when people saw expanse and i think when people play certain games as well that are based on books like i played through uh, metro exodus the third metro game the, the last one it's uh, based on a book and i noticed when i played it that oh it feels like someone spent more than 5 seconds thinking about the internal logic of this world it feels like it's based on a book like an author wrote this yeah. and that's the same thing you get in expanse where it's like oh someone actually thought about this in advance it's clearly based on books it has like a different quality to it than something of writer's room churned out in 5 seconds before they had to start shooting <laughs> and I think you've honestly I think you've hit the nail on the head with what the problem is here yeah. which is that like which is that in older Star Trek it was episodic which now that isn't necessarily on its own something you have to do but mm. what it did the effect that it created was that you assume that the norm is that the ship functions that the crew function together and everything's fine in Star Trek Discovery it's you you're never away there's never or if there's a time skip it's uh, it's pointed out you're you are ending one episode and then the next episode is the next thing that happens in their lives which means that there's never a time when anything is functioning there's never a time when anyone is competent because there's always something going on that's wrong or dramatic which means that like this ship wouldn't leave dock they wouldn't they wouldn't be able to turn it on without punching each other like these people are not functional members of any kind of fleet <laughs> and like 
Let yeah, alone a Starfleet. Yeah, I mean, it's like a. In some ways, in many shows, it feels tedious that like we have an event and then we return back to normal so we can do it all over again in the next sure. episode. But now we see the strength of that format because yeah. at least we have a sense of a baseline what their normal day-to-day life is actually like. <laughs> and the way the way around this is like it's difficult to explain and i'm not sure i could do it myself as a writer maybe i could i think mm. I'm, I'm currently doing something where i'm i'm hoping i'm getting it right but like the way around this is to give us scenes where people are just alive and functioning and friends or whatever and like we got that in 90s star trek loads ds9 is famous for it but even in tng we had it plenty usually the first and last scene of of any ep- given episode was was that i i find the poker night scenes very boring because i hate poker i don't care but yeah as a as a tool it's like these people have downtime they respect each other they play it's they these people are fine with each other's presence which is not really something i get from uh discovery except uh, uh, in the first couple of episodes of the current series from the helmsman uh, driving the ship, the one with the massive eyes and the and the sort of cyber implants and uh, OO on the other side, like they seem to be friends and they seem to. And one of the things I was excited about with series two was that characters like that and the robot, like, seem to have a life of their own, other than the dramatic thing currently happening. And that's what I'm starved of. And they and they didn't really follow up on that by doing it anymore. Mm. Anyway, anyway. When do you have to go? Because uh, gonna make the decision here. Should we talk about Anthem now, this week, or next week? Let's talk about it, and let's see if we can do it in, like, you know, not too long. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so the Cliff's Notes version of it. So, yeah. Anthem is... Um, it's so forgettable that people might, might forget that it was the latest Bioware game made by the uh, Bioware, uh, in giant quotes, A-Team, the people who made... Uh, the studio that made all their uh, old classic games and after Mass Effect 3 this game has been in development for, so it's like it took them 7 years to make this and i looked it up the combined development time for Witcher 2 and 3 is 8 years so oh. normally it takes 4 years for a Witcher game to be made so for the first 6 years of Anthem it was all pre-production. <laughs> they got nothing done. <laughs> okay. And it's uh, people like the Kotaku wrote the um, article with 19 sources, people who worked there and people who have left. And they talk about pretty much a nightmarish combination of just almost vacant leadership the worst engine they've ever worked with as their technology. Like, um, EA made a decision to just... uh, They don't want to pay license fees for other people's engines, and they liked uh, how good the Battlefield games look, so they wanted to just have, like, every game they make use the Frostbite engine that the Battlefield uses. So FIFA uses Frostbite, um... Dragon Age Inquisition, Mass Effect Andromeda, and now Anthem all use the Frostbite engine. But normally, when you have an internal engine that's terrible, 
because it's happened many times in history that, uh, for example, Looking Glass Studios uh, in the 90s that made Thief and System Shock 2, they had an engine that was basically incomprehensible because they released it to modders and nobody could understand how anyone could make an engine, a game in that engine. Because it's just nothing makes sense and it's unexplained and it crashes and freezes all the time. Uh, normally, you have the people who made the engine on staff. So when it freezes and you have an unlabeled button that doesn't explain what the hell it's doing, yeah. you can just go over and ask the person who made the engine. Yeah. But when they were working on Anthem and all the, pre the previous two Bioware games, uh, the person who made it is in Sweden. Uh, in right. like eight hours away in a different time zone and that person is working on a game of his own and he's also supporting the FIFA team so he can't talk to you so they just had to uh, think up a concept of a game try to make it in Frostbite and it's not documented the engine makes no sense it works in unpredictable ways and there's nobody to talk to to help you understand, like, can we work around it? Why is this happening? What's yeah. going on? And this here's another thing that happened, like, with Destiny, the Bungie games, where <clears throat> things in the engine would take a really long time to do. Like, if you wanted to rebuild the map, like, oh, we want to move this rock, like, five pixels to the left... Oh, now we have to wait 24 hours for the level to rebuild so we can see how the game feels after we move this rock just a yeah. tiny bit. So the, the, all those years where it seems nothing was happening, it was part of the technical nightmares here where they couldn't get help and nothing made sense and everything took a lot more time than it should have. And also, I think this game is uh, a good example of a counterbalance to like there's a lot of people who like to downplay the importance of like the senior leadership and directors of projects like when a director for a movie gets all the praise people like yeah. to say well it's a collaborative effort a lot of people shipped in on this and same right. with games where it's like oh it's almost unimportant to say that it's a warren specter game or a david cage game because really a whole <laughs> team of people made it it's a collaborative effort but right. This game shows that, yeah, but if you have really horrible leadership, that also matters. That can ruin an entire project. So the people who were responsible for Anthem for the first five years or so, they were, they made a lot of rookie mistakes. Like I've seen uh, people who have run companies and leaders talk about like, when you're in a leadership position, there's a lot of blind spots. You only realize afterwards how your actions ripple out through the entire organization. Like, you can unknowingly leave a wake of destruction through the entire company, and if nobody tells you what your action, the effects of your actions, you, you kind of don't notice what you're doing. And I think this is what happened with the Bioware leadership, because the people who led all the earlier Bioware games, up until, like, Mass Effect 3, they left, new people were put in charge, and... These don't feel like people who have uh, led projects before. So they were left a lot of questions in the air. There were a lot of indecision and unanswered questions for people in the team of like, what is this game? What are we supposed to do? And like, 
they're supposed to normally in a project, a leader is supposed to make like a firm decision. All right, here's what we're doing. And because they make a firm decision, a lot of other departments now know what they were supposed to be doing. But yeah. people had meetings where they were talking in very broad strokes about the game world mechanics and stuff. And then the meeting was over and everyone just kind of walked away with like, yeah, but what are we actually doing? Yeah. We talked a lot, but no decisions were made. And then like a week goes by and like nobody really knows what they're supposed to be doing. And uh, the the leadership kind of, when people asked the leadership directly, like, so what are we supposed to be doing? They were kind of blown off <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> because they didn't, they didn't know. They didn't want to make firm decisions and they wanted to keep an, an open mind, a creative environment. And yeah. people who worked on Dragon Age Inquisition said that this is how that project was managed, where years went by of like almost nothing happening. And then EA came in and said, all right, we're going to try. Here's a firm release date. You'll get no more funding after it. The game has to be out by this date. And only then did they finally make firm decisions and have uh because so much time was m wasted it was a horrible grind last year of development and yeah, yeah. The, the development team for inquisition said that the worst thing that happened to bioware was the game being successful well received and financially successful because the people who ran that project now felt like it validated their approach right so they did the same thing yeah. For Andromeda and for Anthem. Uh. So it's just kind of their luck that, that kind of made Inquisition <clears throat> work. I mean, we have endless complaints about it. And now it makes more sense that the interface is nightmarishly bad and a horrible place to be because they had to build it from scratch and they probably didn't have time to iterate on it at all because if they changed something yeah. it might have broken the entire thing and for anthem it's a very different thing to make a single player game versus a multiplayer game so for anthem they had to rewrite the saving system the inventory system the animation systems because animations a movement system that works in single player it might not work in multiplayer because of the net code uh, being so inefficient. So characters might not synchronize properly. Saving might mm. not work at all. So they had to mm. rebuild all those basic mechanics from scratch for Anthem. This is mm. something we noticed in uh, Fallout 76, which is the multiplayer Fallout game based yeah. on a single player engine where the game doesn't work because they tried to convert a single player engine to a multiplayer game and uh, well, it doesn't work. <laughs> Right, right. Um, I watched the Joseph Anderson review of Fallout 76, and he said that at one point in his playthrough, the server broke, so new people couldn't join the server. So as people were leaving, fewer and fewer p people existed in the world. And he uh -huh. noticed that the world, the game became less glitchy, and it started working more like a single-player game. Oh. The fewer people were in the world. So for a blissful few yeah. minutes before the entire server crashed when he was all alone on the server it felt like a really functional game <laughs> and then that never happened again so i wonder if anthem is similar where like it's horrible but if you played it in single player it might work better 
Yeah. And uh, yeah, uh. so 12, 16 months or so, it's kind of when they re- put out the E3 trailer, that was their the first time in the project that had a firm vision for what the game was supposed to be. Yeah. Because uh, EA, they they should be left off the hook for a lot of the things that went wrong here. Because they were giving them years. But five years into the project, EA's senior leadership wanted to <coughs> see, okay, so what is this? Because they wanted to prepare like, yeah. a, like a marketing push and have like a clear vision of what the game was supposed to be so they could place it in the market and stuff. So they flew over and saw the game and felt like, we're business ex- business executives. We're not game designers, but even we can tell this is a total piece of crap. And he, the person there who's now left EA, but he said that earlier he was promised that this was a game with jetpacks, but the game he showed them had no jetpacks in it. Right. It was just running on the ground, and it felt like so. Where are the jetpacks? Where's anything unique or distinct for this game? So. Then, in six weeks, they put together what would become the E3 trailer where they revealed the game, where you were flying around on jetpacks. And he was really excited, like, oh, this finally has something distinctive of its own. He really liked what he saw there. And I got the impression when they showed the E3 trailer (laughs) that, oh, so this is the vertical slice demo for the game. They're finally starting the development of the game. But then afterwards, I learned that, no, this is... A game that's been in development for five years already. <laughs> but the impression I got was true. The point where they released the trailer, that was the start of the game's actual development. And people, one of the senior leaders who actually knew how to put a project together, he was working on Dragon Age 4, but Anthem was so troubled that he, Dragon Age 4 was kind of put on hiatus, he went over and started running the the Anthem project, and he's the one who kind of finally made all the firm decisions and kind of drove it into shore and put the game out as we know today. It, yeah, it, it wasn't... The, the reason the game feels poorly thought out, like <clears throat> a technical nightmare, nothing works, it's because they had huge technical issues, the leadership was worthless. Like, even... If they didn't have the technical issues, the worthless leadership might still have put out an okay game. But because of the combination of horrible elements here, it kind of all compounded and made it into the wreck it is today. <laughs> like, I think no. most games have horrible leadership because it's very common, like, uh, for a game post mortem to come out and people say that, oh, a game only comes together in the last month. Before that, uh, we basically haven't played it. It's all a technical wreck. It doesn't feel like a game exists at all. And for a while, I accepted that as that's how games are made. But then I played the the closed beta for Gran Turismo Sport that came out five months before the game was actually put on shelves. And the game was rock solid. It felt like they could ship the game right then and there. But it was still almost half a year away from release because it was perfectly stable. No bugs, no crashes, no glitches, perfect frame rate. Nothing in the graphics was glitchy. All the mechanics, it was the best game in the series then 
five months before release, everything worked. The multiplayer worked. The single player worked. It was just this is a, a shippable game. Five months before release, how is this possible? <laughs> Whereas most games, when they have an open beta, <clears throat> people are kind of like in denial. It's like, oh, maybe maybe they'll turn it around in one month. It's a horrible, glitchy piece of crap, but maybe they'll make it work in one month. They won't. <laughs> the game should be playable and functional and feel like a kind of finished game a half a year before release. <laughs> that should be more normal. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But it isn't because, like, terrible project management. It's like the norm. <laughs> So anyway, um, Bioware's response to the Kotaku article, even though it was well sourced, it was one. It was almost pathetic. The what they were trying to do, they tried to turn it around and sick the fan base on Kotaku because in their response that came out 15 minutes after their article was published, which uh, people noticed that there's no way they had time to read this because it takes a normal person one hour to read the article. Yeah, it was too long for me to read. Yeah. So in their response, they were they were mischaracterizing what the article was saying. They were saying, oh, we didn't want to take part in this article because it singles out and attacks personals, uh, specific people who worked on it. That's like, no... You're, you're mischaracterizing the article. You're lying about the contents. And then they were saying, we pride ourselves on make, or prioritizing our, our players, the player's experience in our games. And people noticed in the, the wording that they were trying to <clears throat> ma- make the fan imply that they were on the fan's side, that if you're a fan, you're on their side because they love the fans and that this article is kind of attacking the fandom and they're attacking Bioware. It seems like in their corporate speak, they were trying to turn around, turn it around so people wouldn't read the article and they would attack the authors and Kotaku sight unseen. They're, they're, They're trying to like cash in trust and integrity that they, they burned all their trust banks years ago. If people believed them and had trust and integrity uh, and felt like they had integrity, like if someone wrote an a hit piece attacking Bioware around the time Mass Effect 3 came out, the fan base probably would attack those journalists because they would feel like this is a beloved studio. We love these people. We love these games. It's clear they're doing the right things and these journalists are wrong. But yeah. since then, they put out disappointing release after disappointing release and whatever trust they had banked in their fandom, they've kind of they've taken it all out. There's nothing left there. Everyone just kind of it has complete apathy for them now. So when they wrote that response, hoping that their fans would be on their side yeah. and they that their approach would be validated, instead, everyone just felt like, no, fuck you, Bioware. <laughs> <laughs> You're lying about the contents of this article. You haven't earned this. And in your response, you're validating everything the article is writing about you being completely tone deaf and and unable to take criticism properly. And it's like, oh, you you burn in hell. 
right. Yeah. I mean, hopefully, I think it's a long road to travel down, but hopefully yeah. this is starting us down the road where it's a mainstream to not want games to be made in this way. Like, you know, crunch and that. I think that the reason that crunch is able to survive is that fundamentally playing video games is kind of in some sense a selfish act in the sense that it's something that you do for yourself more or less that and that's it and so it's natural that a lot of us and myself included would be more interested in the in whether we get to play the game than the experience of the people who made it um and so it makes sense that there's a lot of people who'd be like well uh, it's bad, but we demand our games. So when you've said the release date, if you delay it, we'll be angry. That sort of thing. And I think, and, I hope that ends. And there are some people who are comfortable with like a crunch because they, they have a personal like mentality for like uh, people are different. Some people yeah. really like to like knuckle down and just work on the same thing. Yeah. Oh, exclusively for a really long time and it's it, that's fine they should be able to do that but what's happening here is like a chronic uh, pattern of yeah. forcing people to just work and abandon any thought of a personal life for yeah. a year or more yeah. and that should absolutely not be normal like, okay so if you want to work 12 hours a day on the game because you have a few problems that you really want to work through fine but if you don't want to, it should still be possible to have like, oh, I work on this eight hours and now I go home, like a normal job. And then maybe the final couple of months you do a bit of overtime, but not an entire year like they did yeah. here. And they had an epidemic of people yes, leaving the company and having psychological breakdowns, burning out and like taking several months leave. And yeah. it was, there were so many people leaving the company who had been there for over 10 years. Like it, it wasn't like <clears throat> just like senior leadership leading like uh, lead writers. It was like lead game designers, lead art designers, lead of every de- leads in every department were leaving and a new company has been started by people who left in droves and they're making a new game so maybe the bioware that they actually wanted to work at will now have been formed by people who just left because bioware has become a, a completely toxic place to work and i'm hope we can only hope that they have a few crisis meetings and that they really think think through what they're doing with their next game because yeah. um, Casey Hudson, one of the people who uh, the real kind of old timers at Bioware, he left after uh, Mass Effect Three, I believe, and he's come back in more recent years and he made a new statement that was all full of jargon speak, but he said, all right, we've heard the feedback to our last feedback, and we're going to take your criticism more seriously. (laughs) Okay. So uh, maybe they're reorganized and we'll get something competent out of them, but it just feels like... It makes sense why their last few games have been total pieces of crap now. 
Yeah. Because and, and this has been this is not a new problem. We've known about Crunch for ages. Wasn't it like Mario Galaxy or something? They were like, Oh yeah, we're gonna delay this and we all went, Oh yeah, okay. And uh, like back then we were talking about this. Yeah. And this feels like because it's old studios, this method of working that they have, it worked when games didn't take this long to make or didn't involve this many people. They're too big. They are yeah. too big. The 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 AAA thing is now completely out of control. And like, uh, it and it's them that's guiding it. The only reason that people demand high fidelity graphics and 4K and all of this stuff, and that's what and, and which are the things that make it harder and more expensive to make AAA games, is because. That is what the specific thing they decided to push was. Like at any time they can go, oh, now we're into pixel art, or or now we're into like I don't know simple polygons or whatever. Like they, you can to a certain extent anyway. You can lead the industry, um, and it, and they've they've driven themselves into this terrible problem where it's like there just isn't going to be enough money in the world to make AAA games before very long, or, and time, and the only way to do it is with a whip, and it's like. You know, yeah. I'm glad that we're sort of tuning into that and saying no. Yeah, this uh, super high fidelity graphics, it's a nice bonus, but fundamentally, people don't care because they want something else to be the foundation under it. There has to be some substance, and yeah. because of their chasing these advanced technology that allows them to create this hyper detailed graphics, it just making the game itself has kind of fallen by the wayside and it has become so difficult and so time-consuming that we have multiple games with like Destiny and Anthem and stuff where it was so time-consuming to just make the game that the game comes out and everyone's unhappy with it. And it's almost like people becoming yeah. disillusioned with games as an on the whole. Yeah. Whereas the really big hit games are games that aren't visually advanced at all, but they nail the fundamentals. <clears throat> and what people want is just the foundation of a good game, and then they want the fancy graphics as a nice bonus. But this is why it's <laughs> worth looking at things like Fortnite, mm. you know, which has to be, unless I'm unaware of something, the current smash hit game that all the kids are playing, Fortnite. And like, yeah. that is a very simple, like, you could have released that on the Dreamcast. It's, well, probably not, but it's very simple looking. And like, the the thing, the draw is that your friends are playing it. And you just get to muck about with them, and that is a different thing than graphics. And like, it's not my thing. I'm not. It, not only am I not into Fortnite specifically, I'm not into online game in particular, including with people I know. But like, yeah, hey, same it's here. A thing other than graphics. Yeah, it, it's so easy to point to, and it's like you're chasing a big wide audience, but the big, big wide audience is playing game after game after game that runs on a phone. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Like nobody cares. <laughs> and sure, they do to some extent. People, it's nice, but it's not the most important thing. Yes, I mean, I think it's because I think the reason we chase this graphics thing is because, like, you know, in the olden days when it was sixteen bit and whatever, like, I think that's the time to look at because we'd gone from eight bit to sixteen bit, and it was like graphics can be better and they were those graphics were better and so it was like okay great what's let's make them better and like we imagined that the the ultimate end of that is that you can't tell fantasy from reality and it's just like vr and stuff and we've we've sort of chased that but there's no point because we've now seen the answer to the question can video games be made to look like films and the answer is yes 
uh, particularly as films have been made to look more like video games with time and they're kind of reaching parity. Well, okay, yeah, now we know they can. Forget it. Don't do it anymore. It's done. Like, nobody actually cares. That, that's that been achieved. It's not impressive anymore. I don't know about you, but, like, I'm, uh, you've got more of a chance because you're on 4K, but, like, I'm playing things on PS4, and I'm like, yeah, okay, I guess if I really compared it to something on PS3, I could tell the difference, but I don't care about the difference. It's not that big a deal. It doesn't show up. Yeah, and there, there has to be something that's been lost in all the recent Bioware games. It's just a good sense of style. Because I, yeah. I uh, reinstalled a month ago now uh, Bioshock Infinite and played it for a couple of hours. And it looks incredible! That's the thing. <laughs> it, you, you have to, what you need to do is laser focus on a particular thing. With Bioshock Infinite, it was the style. And, and as a result of that, it's uh, other parts of the game suffered and people yep. kind of only concentrated on that and that was there was a lot of criticism for the game but it's like i was playing it for its style and it was second to none in that meanwhile older bioware games the focus was on story or at least a you know a particular kind of story pre- presentation and so we didn't care that for example in mass effect 1 the textures loaded in a good half second after the scene did stuff like that we just oh, we noticed it we made fun of it but we didn't actually care uh, you got to focus like that. That's what you got to. You got to. You know, indie games are the best at this because they're all going like, okay, my thing is the the feel of the gameplay. My thing is the story. My thing is this. My thing is that. Wadget I, you know, and they focus and they get it right and they do their particular thing. And those are the games that we love and remember the most because they've got an underlying thing rather than just like this looks kind of real, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. I, I think the most ideal example of what Bioware, I guess, is chasing, but they fall so short of it. It's yeah. Witcher Three, because yeah. there we have it looks incredible, but yeah. it also has style and it has all the substance. Even if it looked like a fifteen-year-old game, it would still be one of the best games ever. But as a bonus, it's still one of the best-looking games ever, and it came out yeah. four years ago. Yeah, it's the. <laughs> That is the sort of game that Bioware should have been making by that time. They should have gone Mass Effect 1, 2, 3, and then their next Dragon Age should have been Witcher 3. And they just got trounced. Yeah. Now, what we don't know is whether that's... Because I I don't know about you, but I remember seeing this thing that was like, okay, Witcher 3 was this good. It really was. We all agree it was that good. You don't do that without punishing the people who made it. In that amount of time, there must have been crunch, there must have been terrible conditions. And then... You know the the uh, the documentaries come out, and it's like well, they all seem pretty happy. Yeah, I mean, they might have had periods of crunch, but they might not have had the same periods of indecision, of of yeah. no clarity, of not knowing what to do. When everyone came in every day, they probably knew like, okay, now I'm doing this, and then they did it, and then they went home, and the next day they came in and had total clarity on what they were doing, <laughs> so every minute of the day, they actually used it productively, instead of going in as like, what's the genre of the game we're making today? What's the yeah. art style? What are we doing? I don't know. But imagine if it hadn't <laughs> been that. Imagine, the, imagine a worst-case scenario where, yeah, it had been crunch and bad conditions and so on, right? Somehow, even if it is, even if that was what it was, by doing that, they created a game much better than Dragon Age Inquisition. So the question still remains: Okay, like what are Bioware playing at? Because that their their technique of this this sort of just throwing spaghetti at the wall and then bad bad crunch that doesn't work. 
because they didn't make Witcher three. Yep. So so it doesn't work. So stop it because it doesn't work. Like you could you could understand, couldn't you? If like we like we can disagree with it as much as we want, but you can go okay, like you know, um, punishing factory labor does produce the products that the market is asking for so you, even if you can disagree with it you can understand why they pursue it and that's why it's important to legislate in favor of workers rights and so on with this it's like you can't even see why they're doing it because it doesn't work yeah and i guess the people who were in charge at the time who could have made a change who noticed who should have noticed that it was going horribly wrong i guess they weren't aware i guess they were too busy running the studio they had too much petty stuff to do too many urgent little things to do that yeah. they, they never had the opportunity to take a step back and notice that oh we're everything going horribly wrong here <laughs> yeah yeah i mean all i can imagine is that there was somewhere in this mix and this is probably what happens when you get involved with like ea what you should have is a room full of people who know how to make a game and some of them are businessmen who are effective at being businessmen. And then this st sort of stuff must surely only happen when you end up with people involved who are just businessmen and don't know how to make a game. And so it's all about like, okay, well, you know, produce these numbers by this time. It must be, right? Yeah, they, it seems like they were give, making Bioware too autonomous, given too much free reign oh. without... We're not realizing how bad their leadership was because yeah. they, they were just given five years of pre-production to do whatever they wanted. <laughs> you know, it, it's ama it, honestly, it's amazing anytime anything like this actually works, isn't it? Because yeah. it, me, I was thinking about I was thinking about Sonic again the other day, and I was thinking about how Sonic One that it, it's weird that it worked because they set out to make a ma a perfect mascot platformer, and they did. And like, yeah, you can criticize it, Marble Garden Zone, whatever. Oh, wait, no, that was the thing. Anyway, Marble Zone. You can criticize bits of it, but generally speaking, it was a successful game. And that was because the right programmers, the right designers, all of the people who happened to be perfect at the jobs they were about to do came together into a room. Same thing happened with Sonic 2. Same thing happened with Sonic 3 and Knuckles. And never again. And Well, Sonic Mania. But basically, we've had... 25 years or whatever it is of just like never has there been a properly fully competent team making a sonic game since like the mega drive it's never happened again why not it's and it's because somehow amazingly a team of all great people once worked together and it, it turns out that that is no sure thing and you can't just assume it'll happen yeah i mean it's really hard at any scale to uh, create and ship a game yeah and it might be that the reason bioware worked at the start is because the people who founded the company and were there <clears throat> to make and ship the most basic small scale games were still there and they could scale it up and then the people took over they'd never been there from to ship yeah. a game from the ground up they were just put in charge and then they didn't realize all the hard decisions that have to be made in order to ship, I guess, an indie game or something. And Honestly, it's, it seems to me as if... I'm, I'm struggling to think of any exceptions to this. Oh, wait, mm. Witcher 3. Apart from Witcher 3, and maybe there's a couple of other games like this, all of the good games, all the games that have been released that are genuinely great, have all been by 
small teams in the mm. first years of their studio's existence. Yeah, uh, with Witcher 3, we still had continuity of staff. It was still yeah. the same people who worked on the smaller scale games and then uh, expanded and was still there. And yeah. I guess that's why we should still hold out hope for Cyberpunk, because it's still the same people. Okay. <laughs> oh, cool. All right. I look forward to it then. Yeah. Because I, get... I had been sort of going like, eh, I don't care anymore. Uh, yeah. It's because we have, we've seen so little. And it's kind of the same with Witcher 3. Before it came out, we don't really dare to hope that it will fulfill all our hopes and dreams because there's <laughs> such a big risk of it being yeah. just a total piece of crap. Yeah. But uh, there should be a tiny glimmer of hope somewhere in the back of our minds. So <laughs> when we finally play it and it's like, all right, this is the best game we've ever played. It's clearly made by the same people who wait made Witcher 3, which was the last best game ever made to come out. <laughs> yeah. We sh maybe we shouldn't be surprised if the game turns out to be great. <laughs> okay, yeah. It will just validate uh, our belief that there is in fact a proper way to make games that some studios are practicing and everyone else just sucks. That's why their games are bad. <laughs> <laughs> maybe. They should get good. Yeah. Speaking of which, you'll have to tell me about... I believe you've played the new uh, From game, haven't you? Yeah. Well, I don't have time to hear about it. You'll have to tell me another time, I'm afraid. Yeah, and I haven't finished it or anything. It's uh, okay. one of the... Because I've not played PlayStation 1 games from From Software, I can safely say that, yeah, Sekiro is one of the hardest games they've ever made. Oh. <laughs> it's brutal. <laughs> but at least they put out a game that feels competently put together, and now they're moving on to make another game. And it... From Software have published a ridiculous amount of games that are all completely functional and in different series and franchises. So they're, they're also a studio that knows how to make a game. Yeah, yeah. They haven't forgotten how to do it yet. Great. Yeah. So anyway, see you next week. See you next week.